Nehemiah chapter 4. You know, it, it's always fun to start new stuff, isn't it? You know, it's exciting to have new stuff. But in our human nature, familiarity breeds content. And the honeymoon period is always shorter than we want it to be, right? And, and then it starts into this human element that things are regular and regular is sort of boring. And um, it's, you know, that which was exciting and fun the first few days, weeks, months, it's now um, regular. So it's sort of lost that, that romance, so to speak. And, um, and so we all have to mature and learn in life that um, it's all about how you live the regular days that will define whether you have special days or not, right? You know, you have those regular days for four years in a row, and then you have the, you know, the, the graduation. Unless it's in the middle of COVID, then you don't get that. But <laughs> every hundred years when we have a pandemic, you don't get that graduation. But you, you do this thing, you, you have a lot of regularness, and, and then you get the excitement. And it's in that regular time that character is really developed. Now, as a leader, your job is, again, we've talked about this. You've got a task that one person can't do, a group of people can't do. You pretty much need a participation of almost everybody to make it happen. And so once the leader gets the group of people heading in the same vision, the same goal, he knows it's not going to be all downhill, right? <laughs> he knows at some point human nature is going to kick in and this thing's going to start getting regular, familiar, difficult. There's going to be a push. There's going to be a constant. There'll be some mountain peaks, but mostly there'll be a lot of valleys too. But the leader has to lead through those difficult times. Now, usually when things are getting weak or regular and boring, that's usually when the enemy attacks, right? An opportune time when you're already discouraged or, or getting bored with it and you're half ready to quit anyway. This is a great time to throw in some extra incentive to quit or to not be as diligent. And how did Nehemiah do it? Well, that's what we're going to discover in this chapter. Nehemiah, his people he was leading, or his team, or Team Nehemiah, I like that. He got the people praying. And let me tell you what, any leader that can get the people praying, it's, it's not short of a miracle. You know, you can get, get the people to a potluck pretty easy. You can get the people to, uh, you know, a seminar and end times pretty easy. But try to get a prayer meeting and keep it going. It's pretty much a miracle. The second thing he did was he got them focused and then kept them staying focused. And then the third thing we're going to see is he kept their faith in God in his promises, in God's strength, in God's blessing. So in chapter 4 here, verse 1, So it happened when Sanballat heard that he 
We were rebuilding the wall, and he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. You guys remember back in chapter 2, where he was deeply disturbed that there was some guy from the higher echelon of Artaxerxes seeking to help the children of Israel. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, he despised them and uh, said they're, they're actually rebelling against the king. Fake news. But he was furious and indignant here. That word furious, the very first usage in the Bible, you know, that's really a cool thing to do. When you're studying the Bible in the Old Testament, you come across the word and you say, what's the first time that word was ever used? It's really insightful. Well, the first time this word that is being used for Sam Ballot being furious, the first time that is in the Bible, that same Hebrew word, it's translated anger. And it's about how Cain was angry at his brother Abel. You guys remember how that ended? <laughs> he murdered him. So this is the kind of anger that this guy has. He just wants to see these Jews dead. But there's nobody like that in the world today towards the Jews. This is olden day stuff, right? Isn't it amazing how spiritual the world is? It's really crazy to me that atheists are atheists, that they can't see the spiritual world. I, I've traveled a good part of the world, and, and you know what I have discovered? doesn't matter the nationality. They have hatred for usually two or three groups, but always the Jews are added in there. Got your white supremacists, they, you know, they're mad at the black people, and they're mad at the Jews. It's like, they're prejudiced towards the black people and prejudiced towards the Jews. Interesting how they throw that in there. This tiny little population living in a country about the size of Rhode Island, but worldwide. It's because God loves them. Satan hates them and those groups full of hate and so forth. We, we see that they, they have this. And like I said, I, I've seen it in Spanish culture. I've seen it in the Asian culture. I've seen it in Africa, there is a hatred towards Jews. It's just truly mind-boggling to me that somehow they'll throw that in there. All through Europe is very much like that as well, still today. And uh, they were very indignant. And uh, again, they, they were just incredibly angry and disturbed. And, of course, they were saying that they didn't have a legal right to do this, which is a complete lie, because they did have that. But then they mocked the Jews, or they belittled them, basically trying to make them feel stupid for trying. When you do that, I don't know, it's just a really serious low, low. True story. track team they were running track in a race and it takes off and one of the racers is trying to keep up but not doing a very good job eventually the whole group laps this guy and parents are talking why is that kid even on the track team why did they let him even race in this race the race was over and the coach came over and took the microphone and said, hey, Billy 
eight months ago was in a serious car wreck and they said he would never walk again. And he just finished the 440. And the applause went incredible. And of course, those people, with the information they thought they had, which they didn't have, judged the situation horribly, didn't they? Greatly ashamed of themselves. Belittling somebody is a, is a unique low, low. Now, I like to be funny. And I get with my brother and my dad and my boys. We, we love to cut each other down and have a good time. But older I get, the less I'm finding that amusing, especially when they're getting better at it than I am. But that's a whole other story. But they, they were trying to make them feel stupid. And you can see in a minute they're going to dig in on this point to try to make them even feel more stupid. Look in verse 2. He spoke before the brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones and the heaps of rubbish, stones that are being burned? And they're laughing in between each one of these little phrases. It's one guy, you know, saying, what are they going to do, these feeble Jews? Remember, they've been at it for a while. We're going to learn here tonight that they've been doing this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're going down this hill. We're going to discover it wasn't a matter of just picking up stones. They had to constantly be dealing with all of the rubbish in between picking up stones. They often had to spend time getting rid of rubbish just so they could get to the stones. And remember, the stones had all been burned. They're covered in ash. Have you ever touched a bonfire? <laughs> and in seconds, you got black ash all over your body, and all you did is barely touch it. Imagine picking up these stones. And what did we learn? Young kids are doing it. Old men are doing it. Women are doing it. They're all looking tattered. They're all looking dirty. And they're doing this nonstop. And they've been doing this for a while now. We're going to discover they're halfway there, 52 days in total. So you can do the math. About 26 days into this now. I, I, I think they were probably right. They probably did look feeble. But what were the people telling themselves? I got to keep going. I, we're not done. Half a wall is worth zero. <laughs> And, and, and the more I'm digging now, I'm having to, I, I can't just keep tossing the rubbish to the side. I now got to stop and deal with the rubbish because I can't get to the lower stones. So now we're having to spend a big part of our time. feels like we're wasting time because we're not actually able to build a wall because we're having to deal with all this rubbish. And, 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 and these guys are saying, look how feeble they look. And, and somebody's like going, I'm actually feeling pretty feeble right now. I didn't know I'd look that way. You, you know, people will say that to you. It's like, oh, how are you, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, you just look so tired. I, I just got up from a nap. Um, just, just to let you guys know, this is what old looks like up close. It's just, it's not tired. You can feel great and you still look tired. Sorry about that. But, um, boy, they're, they're just really uh, got a little bit of truth in each of these lies. 
What do they think they're going to do? Fortify themselves? That's what it was all about. And they're letting them know, even if they get this feeble wall built, they're not going to stop. We're going to prove to you that that wall didn't fortify you. That's what we're going to do. So they're probably wondering that. If we get this wall built with all of this very bad material, this half-burnt stones, is it even going to work? After we've killed ourselves and labored, and you know, is it really even going to work? That's the big question. And, um, and then they said, are they going to offer sacrifices? Boy, they, they think they're going to actually be able to be accepted to God and that God's going to receive their worship and that they're going to be a spiritual people. These bunch of people that have been living for 70, now, of course, in this time with Nehemiah, over a, almost 150 years they've been in Babylon. That's a long time to be away from your home country, your home language, and where God hasn't been worshipped. Are they going to complete it in a day? I mean, exactly how long do they think they're going to have to be at this to finish an entire wall? And then will they revive the stones from this heap of rubbish, stones that are burned? Do they really think this material is going to be sufficient? Boy, they, they really nailed all of their insecurities. They really did belittle them in all the right spots to wound them, to discourage them. Well, verse 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. So we see these guys, we see now Tobiah is next to Samballot. Two carnal Jewish men. We've talked about this, we're going to see this. They're, they have no heart to be with the Jewish people. They see themselves separate from the Jews. They're Jews in nationality, but not in heart, not in worship of God, not wanting to unite together with the people. They want to be their separate tribe. If you know Arab worlds, you know that it's all about the tribes. But they're united in evil. They're united. It's amazing how people are at odds with one another until they got to be against somebody. We see that with Jesus, don't we? Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the Jews were all united against Jesus to see him crucified. And then if a fox goes over it, will it knock it down? Again, the wall was feeble, but it wasn't their wall, was it? It was God's wall. In Psalms 127, I love this, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Really, God's element is what brings that success. And without that element, we can strive and work, but the Lord really has to be the one to do it. So notice what they said there. Their stones, their stone wall. Was it their stone wall? No, it was God's wall. And they were speaking against God and his people, much like in the New Testament when people belittle the church. The church is the bride of Christ. It's his fiance. It's not a good idea to, to tell some guy, you're really going to marry her? She's sort of ugly. 
she's a hypocrite, and I wouldn't want to even be around her for even a little bit, but you really want to, it's not going to go over too well, isn't it? Same way, don't talk about God's bride. Well, in verse 4 and 5, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. I love this. We see this over and over again. Nehemiah doesn't get up in their face. He doesn't walk over to them and start pointing at them and yelling back at them and threatening them. He goes straight to the Lord in prayer. Doesn't go directly at the enemy. He goes to the Lord about the enemy. Peter tells us to do that in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon him, God, for he, our God, cares for you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here it is, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. It reminds me of a couple of things in the hiding place. You guys know that story about Corey Timboom and how they got arrested for hiding Jews there in their house above the watch store that they owned. And when they were being arrested, they were taking their 80-plus-old dad and treating him horribly. And, and Corey wanted to get at them and wrestle these Nazis. For, and, and he said, no, 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 Corey, Corey, love them. For these, looking at the Nazis, these are the apple of God's eye. Boy, it's just a twist, isn't it? That God loves his enemies. (laughs) He died on the cross for those who hate him and are sinning against him. And then later, they're in the camp, the, the concentration camp. And one of the ladies making fun of Corey's sister, who's teaching a Bible study, says, can you thank God for these fleas that are biting us every night? And out of all the camp, this one building is saturated with insects and it's ours and we're getting ate alive. Can you thank God? You want to thank God and everything? Thank God. And his, her sister goes, thank you, Lord, for these fleas and all of these other bugs that are biting us every night. We know you even have a reason for them. And oh, even Corey hardened her heart. She's like, oh, my sister's lost it. You know, Well, years later, they were out of the concentration camp and a guy was listening to Corey speak at a church about her testimony, how she went to the deep, darkest place and God's love was still there. And the guy says, do you recognize me? And she did. And she goes, I was a guard. I can't believe you guys had a Bible and had a Bible study several times a day in there because we were catching all kinds of people doing that stuff. And and horribly treating them for that. And he said, the only reason you got away with that is because no guards wanted to go into your guys' building because of all the insects. And she remembered that and said, oh God, forgive me for not being thankful in my heart for those insects. So if you really can give it to God, 
and be thankful in all things as you pray and give it to God. There is a peace of God that before it even is logically reasonable to have peace, you can have peace even in the midst of the storm. And then he says, we're despised. He's going straight to dad. Dad, this bully over here is bullying us and they're making fun of us and we're doing your work and they're belittling us, making us feel stupid and they're hurting us. Boy, you know what you don't want to do is curse the children of Abraham. (laughs) You'll be cursed. Now, I do want to clarify something here because I find Christians sometimes getting confused about our love for Israel and our love for Jerusalem. And, And they say, every Jew I know hates Christians. Well, you see that when you go to Israel. I mean, they really do hate Christians, the Jews. They can tolerate other religions. They, don't, they can't tolerate Christianity because they feel like they sort of hijacked Judaism and, and we're the cult. And so, case in point, there was a Calvary chapel who wanted to bless the children of Israel and there was a little town in Israel, and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of the people's tithes and offerings of a Christian Calvary Chapel church to help them with water source in Jerusalem in the name of blessing the children of Abraham will be blessed. And the question was, is that what God meant? That we're to actually physically bless the nation of Israel and their their system and their mayors and their governors and their cities? Well, let me try to clarify a couple of points. First of all, Romans 11.28 says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So he says, yes, When it comes down to just straight out what you believe and the truth, they are rejecting the one way to eternal life. And and the Jews, whether it was Jesus or the Apostle Paul or the other apostles or the other Christians that they stoned to death like Stephen, yeah, in a a real practical sense, they, they, like anybody, Jew or Gentile, are rejecting the Messiah there's not salvation, and then if they feel emboldened that they need to kill Christians, then they're enemies. And of course, at this time, Paul's time, that was the case. But then he warns the Christian believers and says, this isn't always going to be the case. In Romans 11, verse 17 and 18, he said, now some of the branches were broken off, and referring to the Jews, and you being a wild olive branch, the Gentile branch, was grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do you guys know you can take a tree, like say you have an orange tree? Do you know you can graft in a lemon branch and start getting lemons out of the orange tree? Up in Fresno, I grew up in the valley. I believe it, there at, at one of the colleges, they had 140 different types of um, citrus fruit coming out of one citrus tree. And uh, in my backyard, we had um, 
one tree, I think it was originally a lemon tree, but it had a couple of different types of grapefruits, had a couple different types of oranges, as well as two or three different types of lemons that would come off the one tree. And people that didn't know you could do that were sort of dumbfounded about it. So here he's saying that the natural branch was broken off, the Jews, and the wild olive branch, the Gentiles, was grafted in. But he goes on to say in verse 18, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And then he goes on in this same theme in Romans 11, 25 and 26. For do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So there's several verses I didn't share out of that chapter, but in essence, he says, God chose the Jews, and when God chooses, he never unchooses. <laughs> The gifts and the economy got it irrevocable. So he says that one day Israel as a nation will be God's people once again. But right now they're not. Right now it, they're just individuals. And we, uh, so the idea is that we are indebted to the nation of Israel. It's really not true at this point. But at the same time, um, we realize that the Jews are precious to the Lord. And, um, and so therefore, we also love them because we know the Lord chose them and is going to eventually redeem the nation of Israel once again. Now, Nehemiah prays this horrible prayer. <laughs> he says, God, put reproach upon their heads. Make them plunder and take them into captivity. Don't forgive their iniquities. Don't forgive them no matter what and let their, don't blot out their sin even if they ask for forgiveness. This is what's called an imprecatory prayer. You have it in the Psalms where David is praying against his enemies. The bottom line is, is they don't know Jesus. <laughs> They're in the Old Testament. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount corrected these impeccatory prayers. He said, you've been told to hate your enemy. I tell you, love him. And you know that in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so let, let's not forget that many of the enemies of Jesus eventually became followers of Jesus. Many of the Pharisees we learn in the book of Acts became leaders in the Christian church. One of them, well-known, Apostle Paul, who had Christians murdered, imprisoned. And so we, we as believers are not praying harm upon our enemies, but we are concerned because we know if they don't repent, God, the day of judgment is going to come upon their head. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you love your enemy, hate, or love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but for, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. In Romans 12, 20 to 21, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
So Nehemiah prayed these heavy-duty things, something we wouldn't do in the New Testament. However, in the Old Testament, he basically says, God, I'm praying that you bring captivity and don't blot out their sins and don't ever forgive them because this is what you want. This is what he says, because they provoked you to anger before the builders. Is that true? We don't know, but it doesn't appear so. You can go to the end of the book of Nehemiah and we never see God judging these guys. And we come into the New Testament and boy, they hated the Samaritans, didn't they? This is probably part of that group. And this is why they hated him so much. Did Jesus hate the Samaritans? (laughs) Not at all, did he? He went to them and spoke to them as if they were Jews, even though they were only half Jews or partial Jews. He says, hey, this salvation is for you guys as well. And he went through the various cities of Samaria. Jonah felt like God wanted to judge the Ninevites, didn't he? He's like, God, they're wicked and you want to destroy them and that's, that's what I want too. But Jonah had to learn, didn't he? That actually God doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. And so I, I think that we learn a lesson here that don't instruct God in prayer. Don't tell God how to answer prayer. <laughs> don't give God instruction. Now, God, what you really want to do is uh, make sure my lottery ticket is a winning ticket because I will tithe on that $300 million. That's $30 million for you, God. $270 million for me. But, you know, let's not get technical. But that's really what you want, you know. Um, don't, don't be foolish. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high from the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Romans eleven thirty four, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? We can't say, God, these guys have made you angry. This is what you need to do. Well, God didn't answer Nehemiah's prayer the way he wanted. We're going to find that out. So in verse six, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So really, we, we have to stop and, and take a note of what Nehemiah has done up to this point. When the enemy comes to destroy, God's leader, Nehemiah, helps to rebuild. When the enemy discourages, the leader of God encourages with godly thinking and with a direction to have faith pressed into God. When the enemy brings opposition, God's leader helps the people to defeat it. So interesting that God, God, the enemy's against us. They're, they're, the feeble people are, are feeling feebler and, the, and, the, and everything they said is in the back of our mind. They like read our mind and, and, the, and our subconscious about, is this wall gonna even stand or is it so weak that a fox could knock it over and, And everything they said just really did damage. So I need you to go take it out on them. Fire, brimstone, sounds like a good idea to me. Or, you know, give them all leprosy. Um, 
or just put them all uh, in a sick bed, any of that. You know, God, you, you work it out just as long as it's somewhere in that category. How did God answer the prayer? He didn't do anything to the enemy, but he gave the people a mind to work. God answered Nehemiah's prayer, not by his instruction, but according to his own will. And let me tell you, God's answer to prayer was far superior than what Nehemiah was thinking. It's that age-old verse, isn't it? Ephesians 3, verse 20, 21, we know it well. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have you guys ever seen that Civil War soldier's prayer? that was found, written in his journal. We don't know who he was. He was dead. But this is what the prayer said. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly how to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might fill the need of God. I asked for all things that I may enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I am, among all men, most richly blessed. Interesting, isn't it? When we pray, we don't want to tell God how to do it. We just want to leave it at his feet, and he is far wiser, infinitely wiser, than we are. Well, verse 7 and 8, now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites, so a whole group of these various tribes are coming out. The group is getting bigger. And I'm sure the children of Israel were noticing this enemy group was growing larger and larger, more fires at night, more horses, more dust. They, they, they saw them on the hillsides, this army growing and so when all these guys heard the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And so when they heard that they were being successful, they did not like it one bit. David Guzik says, it must be that the work of God often makes the enemy of our soul angry. He must often rage against the progress being made by God's people in touching a lost world for Jesus Christ. It's not bad to make the devil angry. <laughs> they all conspired together. The enemy was threatening. I just would like you to make note, just to be a spoiler, they never do attack. They never do have a war. But I wonder if the enemy, realizing Nehemiah was sent from Artaxerxes and had these soldiers from Artaxerxes, which I'm clearly were probably in the great royal dress, 
If their plan all along was just to try to terrorize them, by the threats, to try to get them to be scared, and in fear, they, they just are slowed down and, and stifled with fear. So really, that is so often the enemy's way of doing things. That's Satan's strategy. Create this spirit of fear, and in the midst of your fear, your chemistry's not working, your brain's not working, and, and it starts to create a confusion. And then Satan comes in always to divide and conquer. In 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not the author of confusion. Satan is. God is the author of peace. As in all the church and all the saints. Well, verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayers to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So he continued that pattern of leadership that he said. Notice it doesn't say that Nehemiah prayed this time, but all the people prayed. I love this. We made the prayers to God. His leadership was now an example causing all the people to do this. David Guzik says this too. God allowed the attack to go on, even though he could have instantly swept it away. Yet he allowed it to continue because he was delighted that his people drew closer to him with a deeper trust than ever before. God did his perfect work both in building the walls and in building his people. So notice two things. He prayed and he acted. He was spiritual but he was also practical. He set guards up and he did it day and night. Verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the walls. Do you guys remember who these people are? In Nehemiah 3.5, it tells us that the nobles of the tribe of Judah were unwilling to put their shoulder to the work. Now the same tribe of Judah. These leaders are coming. The ones aren't putting their shoulder to the work. They've got energy to slow things down. Remember, they're halfway. The halfway mark, it can be sort of a deceiving mark because you're looking and going, man, look at how much we did so quickly. I think we deserve a break. <laughs> I think uh, we can, you know, Take a rest and come back at this later. Well, you know, guys, I just moved here from San Diego. And we had this group, this football team. We were glad we got them out of town. These chargers. Because they constantly broke our hearts. Do you know how many games we were way ahead in the first half that we end up losing in the last quarter? And sometimes we had huge leads. It psychologically worked against us because it looked like, man, we weren't even half trying and we destroyed in the first half and we could put half that much effort and just win this game. And the, they go into the locker room, come out twice as mad and working twice as hard. And they got the psychological advantage and we lost the game over and over and over again. So halfway can actually be a dangerous time. And so now they don't just have the outside attack, they now have the inside attack. The inside attack of discouragement, 
of saying, man, there's too much rubbish. This is too hard of a job. This just can't be done. But what did they need more than anything at the halfway mark? They needed to pick up their game. They needed to be more hardworking. They needed to be more persistent. President Calvin Coolidge has a great quote. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Persistence is better than talent, genius, or education. It can't take the place. It won't get the job done. And so now they got to tell these tribe of Judah, shut up. (laughs) Yes, we're tired, but we're pressing on. Yes, we're feeble. We're pressing on. Yes, we're finding less good material, but this is the material we have, and we're going to keep pressing on. And, and God is with us. God's going to strengthen us. We're praying to God for his success against the enemies and that this wall, he will make it stand. This is a spiritual thing in the physical world that we're about. Well, in verse 11 and 12, and our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came and they said and they told them 10 times, Whenever the place you turn, they will be upon us. So they're, again, just trying to create this spirit of fear. They're going to be like magic creatures. You know, they're going to be like a puff of smoke, and they're going to materialize behind you and cut your throat. You're going to turn around just in time to see them slit your throat. You're going to see them just in time for them to kill you. They're going to have this magical, mystical powers to be able to come right next to you, and you won't even know it. And these Jews, instead of building the wall, they're out living in their houses in their comfort, and they're listening to the enemy. Do you understand? That's sort of how Everything turned in a bad way in the Garden of Eden. They started listening to the enemy. I mean, had Eve never had that conversation with the enemy, we wouldn't be, we'd all be running around naked in the garden right now. You know, playing with the alligators and and riding the dolphins and and whatever else, you know. Don't, Don't have conversations with the enemy. But here they're being used by the devil and they have no idea. They're coming and telling people, just the latest information. Is they're, they're, gonna, they're really working hard. They're going to figure out a way to get in and sneak in and, and they're going to kill you. You won't even know it until you're dead. And, and, and then it's like, oh, here comes those people again. I'm just telling you, I want you to be aware. I, I'm trying to help you. You, know, you. you should really be afraid. You should probably stop and get off this wall and just go into your house and lock the door and... and and, and save yourself and your family because everybody else is going to be dead. Ten times the enemy is being persistent. So what do we need to be? <laughs> Doubly persistent and don't believe the devil's lies. Just don't have a conversation with him to begin with. But when he does speak, don't believe it. Believe the opposite. In Nehemiah 4.13 now, therefore I position men behind 
behind the lower parts of the wall at the opening, and I sent the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So Nehemiah, he, he, the people are reacting. Man, but they told us that we're going to all get killed, and they're gonna, they got a plan of action we don't even know about. And Nehemiah's not panicking. He just says, okay, okay, to calm your fears, we're going to tighten things up even more. We're going to get more soldiers. And you guys who are building the wall have a sword. I know it's going to make it twice as difficult for you to climb down that steep embankment and you know, get through the rubbish and grab a stone and carry it up while you're banging a sword around as you're walking. But if this will help you guys with your fears, we're all going to be ready for action. So he, he creates another plan. To, to tighten things up. And in verse 14, I looked and I rose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your house. So he says, guys, don't fear. Don't fear. Don't, don't be that way. Trust in the Lord. He's great. He's awesome. And I just say that to anybody here today who's afraid. Don't worry about Tomorrow, today has enough problems. God's already got it worked out. In 1 John 4, 4, you are, you are of God, little children, have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you will prosper, but you stand in fight. I hate the fact that we have to fight because my heart's for peace. But I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, we're in a sinful world where there really is evil people. And they're evil for no other reason just be, than they want to be evil. And I know that's not you and 99% of the people you know. But unfortunately, we have to fight. And sometimes literally, not just spiritually. Well, in verse 15 to 18, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing that all of the return to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears and shields and bows and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked on construction and with the other held a weapon, the sword and the trowel. Every one of the builders had his sword girded on his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside them. So they were prepared and ready at any point to blow the trumpet, and everybody was prepared and ready for the battle. Verse 19 to 23 now as we finish. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated from far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, and they may be our guard by night and working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed he took off our clothes, except everyone took off for his washing. So 
They lived in their clothes. They slept on the ground. They didn't go home to their families or to their beds. And God just giving them this supernatural ability to have a mind to work and just God held their strength up. God kept them protected. And uh, so what are the principles of leadership that we learn here in this chapter? Leaders, number one, cannot lose sight of our goal and purpose, regardless of the circumstances. Secondly, leaders cannot get distracted by either taking time to argue with the enemy or by letting the enemy's words get to them so that it distracts him from the job at hand. Number three, leaders are to focus on the right things, prayer and the needed task to be done in the moment. Practical application for us. Keep your eyes on God and not the situation. Number two, we need endurance. Looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, especially in these last days before the Lord's coming. Number three, don't fear or be afraid. God will fight for us and he is our great shield. Number four, be faithful. First Corinthians 4 says, God will judge us whether we have been faithful or not. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it's required of a steward that one be found faithful. That's it. Not smart, not tall and good looking, not uh, spectacular. Just he continued to plug along, right? The tortoise in the hair. Uh, and, and the tortoise wins the race, being faithful. Just being faithful in prayer, faithful in sharing our faith, faithful in seeking the Lord. Little by little, little things, right? It, it's just being faithful in the little things that shows our character and rejoices the heart of God. Well, is there any thoughts or comments or questions that come up to you as we finish this up here tonight? It's gonna take a little practice and work. I didn't expect people to be stumbling over themselves. And thus, when I teach, I do such a thorough job, there's really no questions. Oh. I take that back. One question here. You, I'll tell you what. She has great questions. <laughs> yeah. So, so going back after Solomon. David's son Solomon, the great wise man, he had a great kingdom. After him, the kingdom split in two. Ten of the tribes became the northern kingdom, Israel, and the two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, became the southern kingdom. They're in the Jerusalem, Bethlehem area. Now, the majority of the people in the northern, so they were very wicked. They set up two golden calves, and, and they were conquered by the Assyrians, they were, they were not a world-ruling empire, but close to it. And their method was to take away the nationality of the people. So they would bring people they had conquered from other countries and move them in, in this case, into Israel. They would take Jews and move them to other parts of the country. The idea is they would lose their nationality and all they would be known as, as Assyrians. And so what happened to that northern kingdom, those who weren't carried away in captivity, who stayed there, were intermarried with other cultures. And uh, they were half Jews and, and half whatever. 
And many of them kept their, their Judaism, but they weren't accepted by the Jews from the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylonians, and they had a 100% different philosophy. Their philosophy, like the Romans later, was keep your identity, just give us your taxes, and uh, keep your cities, keep your, your, um, your system of government. It's fine with us as long as you are in submission to the Babylonian kingdom. So later when they sinned, they were carried away to Babylon, but they were able to keep their nationality even when they were in Babylon. So when the children of Israel came back from Babylon, you have all of these people that are considering themselves Jews, but Ezra didn't consider them as Jews. Remember the book of Ezra. And, um, and then they eventually began to fight against the Jews that returned from Babylon. So they always had this hatred, this Hatfields and McCoy hatred. And so in time, Israel flourished, but the Samaritans diminished. And they became little podunk cities or towns, really. And they were just very much oppressed um, by the Romans and by the Jews for being just a bunch of backward, nobody people. Does that answer that question? Yeah, you're, you're probably right. They were, well, Samaritan wasn't in the northern part. Samaritan was actually pretty close to Jerusalem. It was sort of in between the northern and the southern. And you remember when Jesus left Galilee, he would pass through the, the various towns of Samaria. Yep. Good question. Any comments? Also, you don't have to have just questions. Something that jumped out to you guys that you think would be good for everybody to hear? Yes, Dave. Talk, talk loud so everybody can hear. Anything you want to do, there's going to be opposition, right? I mean, when there's not opposition, I get worried. I'm like, I repent, God, forgive me. What am I doing wrong? Because the devil, I'm obviously not a threat to the devil, so he's not picking on me. So I, I get a little worried when there's too much peace. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if we want to see that the enemy is active is when there is fear and confusion in a situation. Yes. And that's when he loves to bring in division, gets the people at each other, and then tries to divide and conquer, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, a community, a nation. Whenever there's confusion and division, Satan is behind it. He's the author of that. Yes, Anne. Yeah. 
And, and exactly. I mean, you think of strategically on Satan's part of the thing, if I don't actually have to dispatch demons, I can just threaten it. <laughs> That's actually better for me is I can put them somewhere else. But also, um, I think the thought of, of, well, we'll get back to work when the fear factor is gone. We'll, we'll get back to work when everybody's not so mad about it. And it, it's just not going to come. It's working through the midst of incredible pressure. Fit, you got inside pressure from the tribe of Judah putting pressure on Nehemiah. Give everybody a break. You're a tag master. This is wrong. You know, there's so much rabbit. This is just too much. You're, you're, you're just, you're way out of line, Nehemiah. You're going nuts. You're not a balanced human being. And then you got the pressure from the enemy from out. We're going to kill you. You won't even see us coming. We'll be on top of you and slit your throat and you won't even know what happened. So outside pressure, inside pressure. And then just the reality of, of unless the Lord builds this house, because we've been at this for weeks now, <laughs> And we're doing it night and day. And everything the enemy is saying is true and everything Judah is saying is true. It's way too much work. We're working way too many hours. The material's not good. We are feeble. Do we really think God's going to receive our worship even after we build the wall? I mean, all of these things. And, um, but yet the Lord's favor was upon him. That's why he said, hey, don't fear. Our God is great and mighty and his hand of blessings upon us. That's all it takes. That's what you, you find often in the lies of the enemy. I've seen it where church splits are happening. Well, blah, 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 is that true? No. What else? Nothing. It's just not true. And it solves the problem. Satan's lies are just torn down, right? Just in a little tiny bit of truth. Yes, Yeah, I, I think that praying doesn't take away the human element. We saw that in chapter one, where he was praying, but he was also making a, how much wood he's going to need, soldiers, what papers of permission through the various locations he would go through, where he would get the wood, how long he would be gone. So I, I, I don't think the, the, the one thing takes the place of the other. They're hand in hand. They work together. Mm-hmm. Well, there's several verses that say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, both are true. I mean, sometimes God answers prayer right away, and sometimes we wait. But in a couple of places where it says wait on the Lord, it doesn't actually, talking about wait the way we understand it, taking time. It's actually, it's actually be better translated, pray and trust in the Lord to, 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 to realize God is working it out in his timing, in his way, in his will. Just keep moving forward.
So sometimes, you know, one time Moses got the rod before anybody stepped in the water and touched the Red Sea and it opened and they walked across on dry land. Later, when they were going into the promised land, God said, carry the Ark of the Covenant, which was very heavy, and get all the priests walking. And as they walked into the Jordan River, then God parted the river and they walked across. So sometimes God does it ahead of time. Sometimes you're in the midst of it when God answers it. So, yeah. God's infinite. He didn't have to repeat himself. Yeah, Brian? I was just thinking about uh, verse 17 and how that's the, the word for all of us in ministry, pastorship, everything, worship, and ski, and those who build on the wall, so to build it, it's working for Jesus. And those who carry burdens, build it themselves, so that with one hand they work at construction, with the other help the weapon. Our weapon is the word of God. That's where that's why I always The, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And uh, so in a spiritual, if you want to spiritualize this and get a New Testament, if this is a type or a picture, yeah, we just keep working and stay in the Word of God and, and, uh, and keep plowing, just keep moving forward. Good stuff. Well, let's just pray for a couple of minutes here and then we'll close up for tonight. Hmm. Matthias, yeah, go ahead. Mike has something to share. You know, it was a good question here. Um, do, we, do we pray and then wait? But I was also thinking that Nehemiah knew what the Lord had called him to do already, and we really don't know what he was praying. He could have just been praying, Lord, steady my hand, give me strength against these guys as I take my next step. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's not... It's not that we pray and wait all the time. Sometimes it's we're praying while we're taking the next step, while we're swinging the sword, or we're moving the trowel, or we're on the ladder, and the enemy's ridiculing us, trying to get off the work. And we pray as we go into battle, and we pray while we're in battle. So there's no waiting. We're praying for strength. We're praying for wisdom guidance. I, I think Nehemiah was at that stage, you know, um, as he was just seeing how it all unfolded, but he was going to keep pressing forward. So. Why don't you start praying, Mike, and then Matthias, if you'd pray. And, uh, as others just jump right in. Father, we thank you that you do. As we don't want to get ahead of you in the things that we're doing in our lives, but also we we don't want to wait too long <laughs> when we're to, supposed to take a step of faith. And sometimes you say, be still and know that I'm God. Sometimes in different situations, we're just supposed to sit still and watch you 
part the sea. So, Father, we just pray that as we do the work, whatever you've called us to do as mothers, fathers, providers, pastors, helpers, servants, school teachers, whatever it is, wherever we're at as we're going through this world, that you would help us to just simply be more in tune to actually pray to actually consult you more than just not. Help us to get into more of a habit of including you in, in the little things, the big things, the decisions of life. Ultimately, so that we just have your power and presence and, and wisdom in the things that we do. 